1, beginning at verse 1. We're going to read only the first eight verses. Acts chapter 7, beginning at verse 1, down through verse 8. Let's read together, and let's read aloud. Then the high priest said, Are these things so? And he said, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, and said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives, and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land, and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them four hundred years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage I will judge, said God, and after that they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision, And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. Shall we pray? Father, we ask for the blessing of your Holy Spirit this morning to help us in reading and hearing this whole sermon of Stephen's to the Sanhedrin. And as we go through it, Lord, may you not only encourage us by what we hear, but Lord, may you stir our hearts in those areas that need stirring, in those areas that need to be awakened in us, Lord, that we might know that you are God, there is no other, and that we, Lord, are your servants. That we are not bound, Lord God, and our, uh, our, our very Lord is not bound. You are not bound by anything in this world. And so we thank you, Lord, for the great things that you can do and will do, have done and will do for us as we look to the coming of Jesus Christ. We ask these things today in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You all may be seated. We're going to do something we don't normally do on, on a Sunday morning, and, and, and that is we're, we're going to cover 60 verses of Scripture today. And of course, we have to cover it before the next service, so we're limited in our time. But uh, I consider this an important thing to keep all of these verses together, because the simple reading of Stephen's sermon itself, from verse 2 through verse 53 would take only about five minutes. Actually, the whole chapter itself would take only about five minutes. But what we have to consider is that he was summarizing 2,000 years of Jewish history in this one chapter. And so our taking of this whole chapter and reading it as it were is reading a sermon as it was given by Stephen to the Sanhedrin. 
and covering this tremendous period of time. And so we want to look at this sermon in a very general sense, but cover the essential points that Stephen was making to the Sanhedrin Council. And it is important for us to remember the charges, of course, that were brought against this Greek Jew, Stephen, who had become a believer in Jesus Christ. But not only a believer in Jesus Christ, but one that was selected by, by his own people in, in the church to be a helper, to be a servant, to be a table server. Yet we remember the qualifications that it took to be a table server in the church. Here was a man full of the Holy Spirit. Here was a man that was full of wisdom. A person that had a tremendous testimony in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, we're reminded of the charges so that we can understand why he's saying what he's saying and and why the Lord uh, and the Holy Spirit is taking him through uh, this particular history. In verse 11 of the past uh, of the last chapter I should say in chapter 6 we're told that they secretly induced men to say in other words they 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 kind of under the table told everybody you need to say this that which is of course false testimony but they induced the men to say we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God that was the initial charge and then in verses 13 and 14 we're told that they also set up false witnesses who said this man does not cease to speak Blasphemous words against this holy place, speaking of the temple and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. Interesting that they would bring up Moses there, as we'll see in just a moment. And so first of all, he was charged with speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. And secondly, he was charged for speaking blasphemous words against the law, the temple, and for speaking to change Jewish traditions and customs, as they said, given to us by Moses. It is important to note that Stephen was not so much defending himself as he was bringing forth an accusation against his own accusers in regards to three things, the three essential points that we want to see throughout this whole sermon of Stephen. Those three essential points are that he is speaking an accusation against his accusers in regards to the land, number one, to their leaders, number two, which would mean, of course, the prophets who went before them, and thirdly, to the law. He brought an accusation against his own accusers in regards to the land, their leaders, and the law. If you will, jump down to verse 48 for just a moment. For this is really the, the, the key to understanding this whole sermon. The reason why he shares the things that he shares. Beginning at verse 48, uh, Stephen says, However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. Quoting here from Isaiah 66. What house will you build for me, says the Lord, or, or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? And this is what he says to them in verse 51. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised and hardened ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. 
And the title of this message is from this very statement, As your fathers did, so do you. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. In verse 48 through 50, in verses 48 through 50, he, he points out the fact that they were more concerned with the land and the physical temple. They were more concerned with the land and the physical temple than they were, or, or, or that they had forgotten actually that God can't be contained to a piece of land or to some material structure. In verses 51 and 52, he points out the fact that throughout history the Jews had persecuted and murdered their very own leaders and they had just done the same to Jesus. And then in verse 53, Stephen touched upon the law of Moses. Remember they said that he had blasphemed against Moses. But he touches now upon the law of Moses. They were the ones breaking God's law, not him. They were the ones breaking the law. In essence, he was showing the Sanhedrin that the land and their leaders and the law were all things that foreshadowed the coming of the Lord and Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus, whom they killed. And this is what the sermon is about in this passage that we just read. Now remember that Stephen had been debating the teachers in the synagogue and he was actually proving from the Word of God, which of course were the, Holy, were the Hebrew Scriptures because they didn't have the New Testament then. And so they were uh, uh, debating in the synagogue. It was, was a custom in the synagogue. But nonetheless, he was proving from the Word of God that Jesus was indeed the promised Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world. And since these teachers couldn't refute the wisdom and the power of Stephen's words... They had to turn to falsely accusing him of blasphemy. A capital offense. In other words, blasphemy, of course, was punishable by death. And so they put him on trial. And if you remember, they seized upon him. They took him by force and brought him before this council, the Sanhedrin. And so going back now to verse 1. And along the way, I'm going to comment, make some comments about certain things. And so we'll, we'll kind of move this along because we've got... 60 verses to go. But we want <clears throat> to keep focused on, on, on various little things throughout. So I, I'm going to bring up some things as we, as we read this passage. And then look at it from the general sense of what Stephen was saying. But we begin in verse 1. And it says, Then the high priest said, Are these things so? In other words, they're bringing him before their, uh, his accusers and, and asking him, are, are you in fact blaspheming? The high priest probably being Caiaphas. And I'll speak about that in a moment. And so he said to them, Stephen says, brethren and fathers, listen. And I want you to notice that, that Stephen had a respect for these men. That he spoke to them, first of all as brothers, but then he called them fathers. So he dealt with them with great respect. But at the same time, with all due respect to their position, he has to give them the truth. So he says, brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia 
Now this is very important to understand, that uh, throughout all of this sermon, many people have said, well, you know, there was a lot of inconsistencies in, in this sermon. But you have to understand how general this had to be. And, and so there were a lot of things that were being said uh, that were actually understood by the Sanhedrin. There were no contradictions whatsoever in what uh, Stephen was saying. But, uh, you know, when you go back to the book of Genesis and you bring, you know, comparisons, you know, he wasn't just going to, as we're doing today, we're not going to every little verse and nitpicking little things. So he's giving the broad sense. But what he was saying was that God actually spoke to Abraham, not in the land that they are so concerned about. He didn't speak to Abraham in the land that, in Judea or in Jerusalem or in what would become later Israel to Abraham. He spoke to him in Mesopotamia. He spoke to him outside of the land. This is the idea of what he is trying to get across to them. So he says, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. And he said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. And then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. Another little uh, instance of, uh, of, of understanding here is, is that uh, Abraham actually had a, a problem with obedience. It wasn't that he wasn't obedient, it was just that he was progressively learning obedience. Which is a good thing for us to know that Jesus himself, we are told, learned obedience by the things that he suffered. So we also are learning in obedience. But Jesus, of course, never sinned. But Jesus was always obedient. Okay, I just want to put that out to you. But here, Abraham, the father of faith, as we know, did certain things. You know, he was told to leave your relatives, but he took his father with him. See, so there were just little things that he was learning along the way. But eventually, he would get to where God wanted him to be. Notice in verse uh, 5, it says, And God gave him no inheritance... Uh, well, let me go back here, verse 4. Then he came out of the land of Chaldeans, dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. So he says to the council, this land where you dwell, this is where Abraham was brought. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give, him, give it to him for a possession. Much of what we are going to read today was based upon this particular promise. And the fact that the promise that God gives to Abraham that is to be followed along in the history of the Jews was a progressive and even changing type of thing. But nonetheless, it was a promise. And it says, and he gave it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. He promised this. But God spoke in this way, notice, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land. Before they would finally get to this land, there would be a testing a testing upon this uh, upon these people, and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them for four hundred years. That again is is just a, a, in a approximate time. Of course, we know it was four hundred thirty, as it were. But he's not wrong in this because he, in another place, uh, even God would use the term four hundred years. Yet it was it was just an approximate uh, figure. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. So he would judge the Egyptians and the people would come to serve them where they are. And then he gave them, uh, he gave him the covenant of circumcision, that covenant of promise of all of these things. It was that sign of the covenant that was being made. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. 
As I said before, the high priest was more than likely still Caiaphas, who had resided over the trial of Jesus as well. And Stephen begins with Abraham and his journey from Ur of the Chaldees to Haran and from Haran to Canaan, giving what turns out to be roundabout obedience to God's command. He didn't immediately go to the land that God would show him. He went to Haran first. And he didn't leave his relatives since he took his father with him, who would later die in Haran. So the promise wasn't taken away, and this is an important point. The promise wasn't taken away, it was just put on hold until Abraham was ready to obey the Lord fully. Remember that Abram became Abraham. Even Abraham had to grow in faith and obedience. So that's an encouragement to us, that we have to grow in faith and obedience as well. But Abraham would become the father of the Hebrew nation, using him to raise up his chosen people Israel. His son Isaac would have a son, Jacob, who would have the sons who became the twelve patriarchs or leaders of the twelve tribes that made up the nation of Israel. And remember that Jacob's name was changed from Jacob to Israel. And so the first point that Stephen makes is that Abraham, their father, never had any land and he never had the law. Remember, it was no inheritance given to him, not even a, a, you know, the size of a, of a footprint. So he never had the land, and he never had the law. Now this is significant in what Stephen is teaching these Sanhedrin, who are so caught up in this thing about land and law and, and their leaders. He never had the land as his inheritance, even though he was promised to him and would go to his people. He wasn't given the tabernacle, nor did he worship in any temple. Yet he had God's promises, you see. He had God's promises without all these other things. Now, if you read Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 10, notice that it says, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And again, we know that that from from the text we just read in, in Acts. But he says, By faith he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So he, he lays forth this, this idea that though he is given a possession of land, that isn't his land in, in essence. In other words, that's not the city he was looking for. That city was beyond what he was looking for. It was a city that has no foundations, or that has foundations, I should say, whose builder and maker is God. That being, of course, the heavenly city of God. But God was with him all the time. And Stephen is getting this point across that God was with him all the time, guiding him, blessing him. Abraham, in other words, didn't need a temple to be close to God. Abraham didn't need a place to be close to God. When did God speak to him? He spoke to him in in Mesopotamia. He didn't speak to him in Jerusalem. He didn't speak to him, at least, you know, in other words, he did later on, but he didn't speak to him initially in these places. God was with him all the time. And remember that the land itself was, was given so that it would point to Jesus. It would point to where Jesus was going to come. It would point, everything is going to point to Jesus here in just a moment. And from God's promise to Abraham, we go on to his faithfulness to Joseph in Stephen's sermon in verse 9. And he says, And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. But notice, but God was with him. Where was God with Joseph? In Egypt. 
Actually, throughout all of his, most of his life, God was with Joseph. Wherever Joseph was, that's where God was. But God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And the second time, Joseph was made known to his brothers. Now this is somewhat of a prophetic statement that is being made here. That the first time that the, uh, the sons of, of Jacob went to, to Egypt, they did not recognize Joseph, their own brother. When did they recognize him? The second time. It says the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers. And there's a type here of Christ. In that the first time Jesus came unto his own, his own did not receive him. They didn't know him. But when he comes the second time, they will know him. Because they shall see him. They shall see the one whose hands were pierced, the side is pierced. They'll know him, you see. So there's some, some prophetic implications that are given to us here. The second time Joseph was made known to his brothers and, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him. Seventy-five people. Some say this is a tremendous uh, inaccuracy here. But it wasn't an inaccuracy. We, we, we know that in the Hebrew Scriptures it says 70. Uh, there in the book of Genesis that, uh, that there were 70 relatives of, of um of Joseph and, and, and Jacob, and, and uh, here it says 75, and, and that's easily uh, 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 cleared up in the fact that uh, there, this was taken from the Septuagint version. Remember that he was a Greek Jew, Stephen was, and so he read the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and there it said 75 people, referring back actually to the two sons of Manasseh and the two sons of Ephraim and one grandson. That equals five, and they just added those because they were born in Egypt as well. So it was talking about those relatives who came out. Um, that's cleared up. Verse 15. So Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. Another inaccuracy very quickly that we'll try to clear up here is that they said, well, wait a minute, we thought that Abraham bought the cave in Machpelah where he buried Sarah and, of course, was buried himself. And uh, he did. But he also bought, the, uh, he also bought land uh, in Shechem for an altar. And he, and he worshipped there. But later on, as, as Abraham had left there, the, the land was, was taken back by the people of Hamor. Nonetheless, Jacob would later go on and buy that land, and there would be a grave there. So there's, there, there's ways of, of seeing that these are not inaccuracies. But see... The Sanhedrin wouldn't consider them as, as inaccuracy. So uh, that's why we see this, this continuous uh, summarization being uh, stated as, as it was without any contradiction. So again, there was no temple, and yet the presence of God was with Joseph all the time. God was with him, you see. Stephen's mention of Joseph is as a type of Christ in that the sons of Israel, Joseph's own brothers, had rejected him and yet he would later become their savior for them in Egypt. God had taken Joseph into that land. You know, we could, we could wonder or question, you know, how he did it, but nonetheless he was there so that when his people had to come to be saved, they, were, they had a savior there. That was Joseph. Joseph. 
Now, they seem to have had a habit. The children of Israel seem to have had a habit of rejecting the saviors that God has sent them. Joseph's brothers were, were moved with envy, if you remember back in the early part of Joseph's life. They had been moved with envy, so, so were those who delivered Jesus to Pilate, if you remember. There's a statement made about uh, the fact that uh, Pilate recognized that these were envious people and that that's why they brought Jesus up to him. Joseph was sold for 20 pieces of silver. Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver. Joseph was punished for sins that he did not commit. Jesus, the sinless one, was punished for our sins. The comparisons are numerous and we could go on and on. But these, these are the little points that we have to consider here. No temple, no place, no land, yet the presence of God was with Joseph all the time. He continues on in verse 17 and he says, But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph. And this man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies. Of course, these were the male children, so that they might not live. And at this time, Moses was born. And now we come into the life of Moses. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God. And he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Now, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. Stop there for a moment and think. Here is Moses who grows up in the courts of Pharaoh, wears the clothes of Pharaoh, wears the clothes of Egypt. But by the time he's 40 years old, there's this realization. He's not an Egyptian. And maybe there was a reason why he was there, because now he realizes that there is a connection with the Israelites, the slaves. And he tries to make a connection there, but he thinks that his brethren would understand that God would deliver them by his hand, but they don't. It reminds us of Jesus coming to his people, but they don't receive him. Verse 26, And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Which brings to mind something else. It brings to mind the very fact that we can't hide anything from God. That oftentimes we think that we're, we're putting things under the, you know, the rug, so to speak, from others, but God always knows. And it may have been important for this person to know that something had happened to an Egyptian and that it was Moses that did it, and so Moses couldn't go off scot-free here. And so in verse 29 it says, Then at this saying Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, 
where he had two sons. We look now at Moses, this next type of Jesus, who was favored by God from birth. Pre, uh, I should say preserved miraculously through his childhood. Wasn't killed as, all, as many of the other Hebrew babies were killed. We're told that he was mighty in words and deeds. He may have been mighty in words and deeds as an Egyptian. Of course, when he stands before God one day, he doesn't have much to say because he stuttered a lot. But he was mighty in words and deeds, we're told. But these are the comparisons that we need to consider with Jesus. Moses was raised in a palace, but he left it to live with his Hebrew brethren and deliver them. Jesus left his eternal home in heaven to live among and to deliver his people when he came to earth and took upon himself flesh. There's a comparison here. After Moses was rejected, he went into the land of the Gentiles and he took a bride for himself and had sons. After Jesus was rejected, he went to the Gentile nations and is taking a bride today, his church. Which, by the way, is not only made up of Gentiles, but of Jews who believe in Gentiles as well. But nonetheless, he has many sons and daughters. So there's the comparisons that we find between Moses and and Jesus here. But in verse 25, Moses had supposed that his brethren would have understood his role as their deliverer sent from God. But in fact, he was rejected. And that, he was rejected with spite. Israel denying that he had any right to rule and to judge over them. Stephen's message was clear to the Sanhedrin here. You've rejected Jesus, is what, what Stephen is saying to them. You've rejected Jesus, who was like Moses, yet greater than him. And you deny that Jesus has any right to be a ruler and a judge over you. So this is the hard-hitting part of Stephen's message to the Sanhedrin. And he uses Moses here as that example. And, And you know, there's a lesson to be learned in the humanness of Moses here. It's not to say that uh, Joseph was less human than than Moses. Joseph had his problems. Joseph had his concerns, as, as all of us do. We're human. But Moses in particular shows us a side of humanness that we need to take to heart today. There may have been a subtle superior attitude in Moses. Remember, gee... For a time, he was paraded around as the grandson of Pharaoh because the daughter of Pharaoh had taken him as a son. He, had, he was learning all the, the wisdom of, of Egypt, uh, so he was superior in, in, in intellect as well. It's easy to take on a superior attitude, as subtle as, as, subtle as it might have been. But think about it. He lived in Pharaoh's palace, a son of Pharaoh's daughter. And also Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Yet it took him 40 years, you know, to be educated in the world's way of deliverance. 
What he tried to do in separating these guys, you know, and, and how, he did, how he delivered the one uh, Israelite from the Egyptian and killed him, and then tried to separate these guys and try to, you know, deal with, with things in, in, in the worldly way. That, that's, the, well, that's what the education of the world will, will bring us to, is, is the world's way of deliverance. It took him 40 years to learn that. It would take him another 40 years in God's desert school to teach him God's way of deliverance. There's a world's way of deliverance and then there's God's way of deliverance. So by his 80th year, he probably didn't think he was good for anything. Remember, he's been in the courts of Pharaoh. Now, by the time he's 80 years old, what is he doing? He's out tending sheep for his father-in-law. Out in the desert alone, talking to sheep. Can you just picture that? You hope that none of the sheep were talking back. What a humbling experience that may have been. What a humiliating experience it, it, it must have been. But this is an important thing, you see. The humbling of our nature. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5-7 through says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. The important thing is this phrase here, be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. That applies through the Old Testament, New Testament, and it applies to our day now. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time. Casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. What a, beautiful, what a beautiful experience it is to be humbled by God for the sake of preparation for service. Forty years Moses lived in, in Egypt. Forty years Moses lived in the desert. Toward the end of those forty years, he has a tremendous experience with God. Notice in verse 30, when 40 years had passed, the next 40 years, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush. Happy birthday. I would think it was about his birthday, you know, his 80th birthday. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. And then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now, come I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one God sent to be a ruler and deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. And take that again as this. The first time that he's there among his people, they don't recognize him as a ruler. The second time he goes, he is recognized. Again, that 
prophetic view, that prophetic type of Jesus who came among his people the first time wasn't recognized, was rejected. But the second time that he comes, every eye shall see him. He brought them out, verse 36, He brought them out after He had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and the Red Sea and and in the wilderness forty years. Things were happening with Moses. God was doing things with Moses. God's calling upon Moses was confirmed with unmistakable signs. Those those signs that were being done before Pharaoh to prove to him that God had sent Moses. Especially... The great sign, the the, the most important sign, was that of the burning bush in the wilderness. Which once again shows us that the Lord's presence is not limited to the temple and not limited to the land. Where was this? It was out in the wilderness of Sinai. Hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem. Hundreds of miles away from, from Judea. The land that would one day be called Israel. The Lord's presence is not limited to the temple and Moses didn't need the temple to be close to God. That's the driving point being made in Abraham and in Joseph and in Moses. Moses didn't need the temple to be close to God. As a matter of fact, the scripture tells us that Abraham was a friend of God. Scriptures tell us that God was with Joseph. Scriptures tell us that Moses also was not only a servant but a friend of God. But consider the repeated rejection of Moses. Consider the repeated rejection of Moses. Verse 37. Stephen goes on to say, This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. Taking that, of course, from from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 18. Where Moses prophesies of Jesus, prophesies of the Messiah. In verse 38 he says, This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai. And with our fathers, the ones, or I should say the one who received the the living oracles to give to us. Moses being the one to receive the law and to give unto the people. Whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected, and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. Notice they didn't have to go back to Egypt to go back to Egypt. They turned in their hearts to go back to Egypt. That says that even we today can be here where we are in church and turn our hearts back to the world. And how careful we need to be about that. Their hearts turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, verse 40, Make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. And then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god Remphon, images which you made to worship. And I will carry you away beyond Babylon. 
One of the prophecies given here in this uh, prophecy of, of, of Amos was that it was to be carried to Damascus. Stephen goes a step further and carries them all the way to Babylon. Which is what begins to enrage them. The Sanhedrin who are beginning to realize what, it, what Stephen is saying to them. Because Stephen sets up his conclusion by reminding the Jews that the Moses that they claimed to revere spoke of the coming of one greater than himself and that future Messiah was none other than Jesus. And so how respectful were their fathers to the law? They had not really been respectful concerning the land. They hadn't been respectful to their leaders. How respectful were their fathers to the law? Listen, the Israelites got so tired of waiting while Moses was on Mount Sinai receiving the law that they pressured Aaron, Moses' brother, to mold a golden calf for them to worship and that in a drunken orgy. So much for the respect of the law. What happened to their respect of the law? Their fathers did this. And they were doing the same. What did, what did uh, Stephen say to them? As your fathers did, so also do you. What about the land? Look at verse 44. Our fathers had the tabernacle of wilderness in the wilderness as... I'm sorry, the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. As the prophet says, and again Isaiah 66, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? The point that Stephen makes here is that even the presence of the tabernacle or the temple did not keep them from rejecting God and His special messengers. They had the tabernacle, they rejected the messenger. They, they had the temple built, yet they continued to reject the messengers. In fact, he is confronting their idolatry of the temple. Stephen is confronting their idolatry of the temple. They were trying to confine God within the temple, but the Lord is too big to fit in any temple that man can make. And so he quotes from Isaiah 66 and he says, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? Where is it? That? That's the house. And where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made and all these things exist, says the Lord. Now I add this next part of verse 2. It's important for us to understand about the heart, but on this one I will look. On him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. Because I think of the heart of the Sanhedrin here. I think of the heart of those who are rejecting Jesus, who have taken Jesus and placed Him on a cross. I think of these who did not tremble at the Word of God. For if they indeed had trembled at the Word of God, these things would not have happened. 
And the same can apply in our day and time that many people can have the Word of God, they can read the Word of God, but not tremble at the Word of God, not tremble at the power of the Word of God, not tremble at the very fact that it is God Himself who has given us this through the power of His Holy Spirit, and, and then realize how powerful God's Word is, that we hold it up in high esteem. Why is it today that so many people are wanting to put the Bible aside? And say, well, no, why, why, why read the Bible? Why, why think that that may, matters? I mean, let's just kind of encourage people. Let's just kind of make people feel good about life. You know, that's what they need today. But it is God who says, you reverence my word. Psalm 138 says that his word is above his name. Do they tremble at his word? Had they come with a heart that was bowing before the word, they would have seen Jesus. There were those that did. Because they trembled at God's Word. We need to tremble at God's Word today. In other words, we need to have the fear of the Lord. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Do we want to understand God? Do we want to understand His heart toward us? Then we need to bow. Tremble at God's Word. And so now Stephen applies the sermon to the Sanhedrin and to all who listen that day. Verse 51, you stiff-necked, stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. Your flesh might be circumcised, but your heart is not. Circumcision was to be a circumcision of the heart more than it was to be of the flesh. Stiff-necked means they were stubborn. And they were stubborn like a mule, stubborn like a donkey who just pulled back at God wanting to lead them. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting that we read a verse that said that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. But here they were resisting the Holy Spirit. And that word resist is a strong word that says that they not only resisted, but they actually attacked what they were resisting. That's the strength of that understanding of that word. They attacked the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. It was not just resisting, it was rejecting. As your fathers did, so do you. Rejecting the person of the Holy Spirit. Who was prominent at Pentecost? The Holy Spirit. Who was prominent in building up the church? The Holy Spirit. God has sent His Spirit upon the church. Who was prominent in the, in the healings, prominent in, in the preaching. And they were rejecting the Holy Spirit. Verse 52, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? That's a tremendously wise way of asking that question. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Which one came out okay? There's only one answer. None. They persecuted them all. They killed those who foretold the coming of the just one. Of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. Not only did you kill those who foretold, now you killed the one who came who have received the law by the direction of angels, what a miraculous thing it was that God gave this law the way He did and have not kept it. Had it come any other way, would they have kept it as well? But here God brings it and gives it you know, with messengers, heavenly messengers, and they did not keep it. Who was it that was really disrespecting the land? Who was really disrespecting the leaders? Who was really disrespecting the law? It wasn't Stephen. 
As a matter of fact, in the way that he reads this sermon, the way that he presents this sermon, we see his total respect for the law, total respect for the land, total respect for the prophets. It was a, the religious leaders, it was them, the Sanhedrin, that disrespected the land, the leaders in the law. God could never be contained by an earthly temple. Besides, the veil of the temple was split in two. Do you remember that? It was split in two from top to bottom when Jesus died on the cross, and they all knew it. Oh, they could use the excuse, well, it was probably the, the earthquake. What earthquake could take a two-foot-thick veil and rent it, tear it from top to bottom? If it wasn't by the very hand of God, who did that for this reason, it, it signified the way into God's presence was now open. It was now through Jesus that you could now go directly into the presence of God in heaven. And they were now disrespecting God by holding on to their rituals and their sacrifices of the temple. As Jesus had said, it is impossible for old wineskins to hold new wine. And they were the old wineskins. In Matthew 9 verse 17, Jesus said, Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. How do you contain the presence of God, the the, the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, if you are not a new wineskin? They were holding on to the old. You cannot put the new wine into old wineskins because that new wine expands and it will burst those dry old skins. They can't stretch anymore. The greatness of Stephen's sermon was not only in its content. I mean, we're talking about... this. Stephen was the first Cliff Notes of history. Y'all know what cliff notes are? Who knows what cliff notes are? Okay. That one just kind of went over some of you guys. Use them in college, you know. You, you don't want to read the whole book so you get the abridged version, the cliff notes, you know. But, I mean, th- this was a tremendous 2,000-year history given. But the greatness of the sermon was not only in its content, it was in its courage as well. He alone, before the Sanhedrin, placed the accusation upon his accusers of how they disrespected God the land the law the leaders and this we know by the very reaction of the listeners verse 54 when they heard these things they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth by the way that picture there this is a tremendous picture here you're talking about the men that were the most revered of all the Jews in, in Jerusalem the Sanhedrin they were they were lifted up and, and, they, and they were they were uh, they were to be so dignified in all of their ways because they were the religious leaders of the time but when they heard the things that they were uh, they were given through this sermon by Stephen They were cut to the heart. I mean, it just pierced them deeply. They gnashed, it says, at him with their teeth. I mean, just think of the picture here. You know, just grinding their teeth. And and, and in actuality, it's it's giving a picture of of, of almost an animalistic uh, uh, response. Like animals. 
That's not. That's, 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 that's one reason I'm not real happy when I hear that you know people do all kinds of growling and stuff in church. I, 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 that's, that's not of the Lord, folks. But notice, notice Stephen in the midst of this ugliness. He, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Sound familiar? It sounds like something that, that uh, uh, Jesus himself said that caused the religious leaders in Jesus' time to accuse him of blasphemy. And by the way, this is the last time we see this, the phrase Son of Man in the, in, in, uh, used in the New Testament. It is by Stephen, the first martyr of the church, the first to give his life for Jesus. He says, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What a beautiful picture it is, standing. You know, most of the time we see that he's sitting at the right hand of God. Why is he standing here? Well, you'll see in just a moment. Then they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears. Look at this picture again. They're crying out with a loud voice, yelling and screaming, but they have their hands over their ears because they don't want to hear any more that Stephen is saying. I mean, isn't that a, a tremendous picture of di- dignified men? Ah, you know, just yelling and screaming. You know, sometimes we don't want to hear something. We cover our ears and go, ah. Don't tell me that. You start hearing something you don't want to hear. Ah. It's just ridiculous. It's just an ugly picture of these people. They cried with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and they ran at him with one accord. In other words, they didn't just, uh, they didn't just respond you know, about what they were hearing. They ran, attacked him actually. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. You know that uh, the stoning was done in a, in a very uh, precise way. They, they didn't just go out and throw rocks. They took him to a place that had a, a, a jump-off point down into a pit where you couldn't actually escape. And they would throw him into a pit, or they would throw a person into a pit. Then they would take the largest rocks that they could actually pick up and, and heave, and they'd heave them down upon the person. If that didn't kill them, then all those who had brought him out there had their own stones. Remember the woman that was brought to Jesus. Everybody had stones. If that person wasn't dead by then, then they would throw stones at him until he was. That's how they did stoning in those days. And it says they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. How interesting. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. The words of Jesus to his father, Lord, receive my spirit. For he knew his day was over. And verse 60 says, then he knelt down. Which tells me an amazing thing. Here he was after the first attack. Yet he knelt, he got up to kneel. He had to have gotten up to kneel. And he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. What does that remind you of? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And when he had said this, notice Luke records, he fell asleep. I tell you this, 
that any believer in Jesus Christ who leaves this life is not dead, but is in the very presence of God. His body may be dead. His his body may have come to its end. But he, that in fact is just sleeping. Christians don't die. Christians don't die. Paul tells us. To be present, to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. So our loved ones who have gone on before us, their bodies may be asleep, but they're very much alive. They're very much alive in the presence of God. And Stephen was in the very presence of his Lord. It's hard to summarize these last verses of chapter 7 in just a few words. Suffice it to say that Stephen found Jesus on every page of the Holy Scriptures. On every page, Stephen saw Jesus. The whole point of giving this history was that everything was to point to Jesus. And then Stephen sees his Lord in his glory and Jesus standing to receive him into glory. Again, most of the time when we read about Jesus at the right hand of the Father, he's sitting, he sits at the right hand of the Father. But he stands for Stephen. Precious to the Lord is the death of his saints. But he stands to receive this saint into his kingdom. Jesus must stand a lot when believers die and come into his presence. He prays for God to receive him and to forgive those who unleashed their rage on him. And it makes us ask the question, can we do the same? Were we to be treated the same way? by an unforgiving and an unloving world? Can we say as Stephen, Father, do not charge them with this? In effect, he's saying, they don't know what they're doing. He displayed that same forgiving attitude as Jesus had on the cross. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. In all of this, can you imagine this young man named Saul? Young, not so much in age. For indeed, we discover later on in his life that he was more than likely a member of the Sanhedrin at this time. Young in his experience, maybe, but used. Here we see him standing there as the supervisor of this stoning operation. 
Which now gives us a little bit more of an indication that he was there to hear Stephen in that synagogue, the synagogue that he belonged to. For he was a freedman from Cilicia. Tarsus in Cilicia. My questions as we close, had Stephen's words sunk deep within his heart? Have they sunk deep in, within our own hearts? Are we able ourselves to give this wonderful panorama of God's involvement in His people for 2,000 years? In other words, are we able to give forth God's Word with such passion, with such, with such clarity, to burn in the hearts of men? Has Stephen's life and attitude of life sunk deep within our hearts to stand courageously before these 70 men and many others, I'm sure, to give the testimony of Jesus Christ through the Hebrew Scriptures and to stand there knowing that this could be the very end of it all? You see, this is what makes our witness important. Stephen, as I said last week, never saw the results of his witness. Remember, the first witness was that they saw in him, in his face, the face of an angel. They saw in him the presence of God. Now they heard what he had in his heart. And he was respectful to them, yet he was honest with them. And though he did not see the result of his words in the life of Paul, down deep inside of Paul, somewhere at some point in time, God brought it to his account. And of course, he became the Apostle Paul. Stephen never saw that, at least in this life. Maybe the Lord would allow him in, in, in glory to see what great effect he had on the church. Will we have that same effect as we look to the day of Jesus Christ? Our witness, our testimony of Jesus is of utmost importance. It may affect one life, it may affect five lives, it may affect ten lives, it may affect thousands of lives. But our witness is important. Will you give that witness for Jesus as we see his day approach? Let's pray.